It's good to be here this morning. We may have a few visitors with us, and we're proud to have you with us. We asked you uh, join with us in our services this morning, and hopefully we'll be able to say something that is, is good for you, that is good for all of us. We'll apologize if you're visiting with us that you don't have a better speaker for the hour, but uh, that's who you got. So we're going to see what we can get out of, a, out of a short lesson this morning. Lacking just exactly one month, 80 years ago, on a Sunday morning, real early, Pearl Harbor was the scene of a, de a devastating surprise attack by the Japanese forces. Just before 8 a.m. on that Sunday morning, hundreds of Japanese fighter planes descended on the base where they managed to destroy or damage nearly 20 American naval vessels, including eight battleships, over 300 airplanes, and more than 2,400 Americans died, including civilians, and another 1,000 people were injured. That was a bad time. It was a really bad day. It's kind of a, another bad day for the U.S. U.S. was very different back then. Look, this is only eight years after the end of, of the Great Depression. And even though it had ended eight years ago, they had had another depression where they had as much as 25% unemployment just a couple of years before this. It, we're used to America being a, a, the greatest nation in the world, the richest nation in the world. It wasn't at that time. We were not ready for war. But you know what happened? By the end of that war, half of the world's industrial production was in the U.S. Half of everything that was made in the whole world was made in the U.S. I talked one as well after as a school a history teacher and I were talking about economics of the world and in the United States. It's been several years ago. And he said, do you realize that World War II was when America got rich? Even though that was a bad time. So many of our own people were killed in war. So many bad things happened in the world around. But from that, us being able to crank up a war machine that we put out boats and airplanes like Henry Ford's Model T in an assembly line, we were able to produce so much stuff that after that war, most of the world was destroyed and the U.S. wasn't. All of Germany and Britain and those places been bombed to pieces. They couldn't make anything. Suddenly, we were the people that had the ability to make things. And our country became rich. I talked to another fellow several years ago, and we were talking about a, a, a guy that had done real well here locally. Had pretty much built a company from nothing and become quite rich. He said, did you realize that he went broke when he first done this? That he took bankruptcy? No, I didn't realize that. He started naming all the people that were big names around Somerset that at one time or another had either took bankruptcy or just almost were broke before they made it well. I bring all this up because the idea is, is you know, when bad times come, when trials come, when things happen to us, they don't stay that way. 
They don't always remain bad times for uh, a country or a company or even us as individual persons. I first looked at the Bible, just a few people, and I'll, I'll uh, go through them kind of fast. I won't, I won't bore you. These are stories that everybody knows, and they know them quite well. Job. Everybody knows what happens to Job. He's, he has everything. He has a large family. He has lots of land. He has lots of, of livestock. He, he is just wealthy for that time. He loses it all. And then after he loses it all, the devil goes back to God and says, well, you know, if you actually took his health away from him too, then, then you'd find out the true Job about whether or not he really cares for you. And Job 2 and verse 7 says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery which, with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. He is so low. He's lost all of his wealth. He doesn't have anything. And now he's got sores from one end to the other. And he takes an old broken piece of pottery, like a sharp edge of glass or something. He takes that and he scrapes the sores while he's just sitting in ashes. That's pretty low, ain't it? Well, it gets worse. The very next, very next verse in Job 2 there, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. How low could you be that you're in that kind of shape? And the one person that should be encouraging you just says, curse God and die. And if you go and read through the rest of Job, his friends feel sorry for him, and they come and say, you know, this is your fault all this happens. So it even gets worse. Did it stay that way for Job? I mean, we all know different. Job 42, verse 10 says, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. He was a, as low a point as anybody could be, and he come out twice as good at the end. The Lord took care of him. Joseph is another person. What would you think about it if your brothers thought so little of you that they'd they thought about killing you, throwed you in a hole, and they decided, we'll just make money off it. We'll sell them it to be a slave for some people coming through the country that are going to go somewhere else. They threw them in a hole and sold them to a bunch of people that was going to take them to a far country to be a slave. Now, that's being betrayed by your family. He gets to that far country... And he winds up being a person that, as we're all supposed to be, he was honest, he worked hard, even though it was unfair what had happened to him. He didn't sit down and cry and say, i just been, just everybody's against me, poor pitiful me. He does a good job. He works hard. He winds up being the favorite of his master. And then the master's wife lies on him. Causes them to be thrown into prison. How low could you be that you do everything that you can possibly do? Your family forsakes you, betrays you. You do the best job so much that your master puts everything in control of you. And then you're lied on by the master's wife and you're thrown in jail. Thrown in the prison where the, all the king's prisoners were. 
Did he give up? No. He winds up being a, a person of good character even in prison. And eventually he gets out of there. He, he does uh, a favor for Pharaoh. And in the end, Genesis 41, verse 41, and Pharaoh says to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Now that's a real short, abbreviated thing of the story of, of Joseph. He starts off being sold into slavery, thrown into jail, and now basically he's running the land of Egypt, which at the time was the, the biggest, wealthiest nation in the world. He was probably, other than Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the known world at that time. He come from a bad time, but it didn't stay that way. It didn't stay that way because he worked at it even in the worst of situations. Let's look at another example we have in the old Bible. Esther and Mordecai. Esther was the king's wife, but she was actually also a Jew and a slave. The, the people, the Jewish people were in captivity in Babylon, and they were they were the slaves of the people of Babylon. Esther has um, came to a position where she would have some influence, if not any authority, by the fact that she was pretty and the king had chose her to be his wife. But the Jews had a terrible enemy at that time, Haman. And he wanted rid of all the Jews. In Esther 3.13 we read, Letters were sent by the couriers to all the king's providences with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So a decree goes out that, you know, we're going to have a free-for-all on this day. You can kill all the Jews, all of them, men, women, and children, and take everything they got as a plunder. That's a pretty low time, isn't it? In Esther 4, 3, we read, In every providence, wherever the king's commandment and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. This was it for them. Think how you'd feel like it. What if there was some kind of decree that all the Christians and all the, the uh, members here, that the 13th of next month in December... You're all going to be killed. And everything, you've been everything that you've got is been, going to be given to everybody else. It would be a sad time, wouldn't it? How low could it be other than that? We read on there that Mordecai, talking to an envoy to Esther, says it also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susha for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathika went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathika and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants 
And the people of the king's providences know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except through the one who the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. I'm sure that kings at that time had to worry about being assassinated. And they had this rule that if you sneaked in there, or I mean, if you walked in there and tried to walk up to the king without him asking you, they just killed you. The guards were to kill you. The only thing could save you is if the king held out his scepter and says, don't kill him. But that was the standing rule, kill him. So she, if she goes in there without being asked, she has taken her life into her own hands. There's a very good chance that the guards would just kill her. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. More than likely, the king and Haman, the king's uh, buddy here that hates the Jews, don't, they don't realize that she's a Jew. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and a deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is one of my favorite readings in the old Bible. Who knows that for the time that comes, that comes to our lives, the trials that we have, the things that we have to do, the things that come before us that we have to put up with or make a decision about what we're going to do, how do you know that you, God's providence that put you there for that very thing? We don't know. We don't know. We know that... that Esther, if you want to read the whole story, that Esther does come before the king. It is made known to him that, that Haman is, is, has plotted and used him to plot against all the Jews. And it is, it is turned back on to Haman. We can read in Esther 8, chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 8. On that day, King Osiris gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him what he was to her, that, she was, that he was her relative. And the king took off his signet ring, which he, had given, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. On down a couple more chapters, we read in, in Esther 10.3, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to king Osiris, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Mordecai, who was condemned to die and everything taken away from him, now he's second in charge, just like we read of Joseph. He's in charge of, of all these things and rules in a way that is good. Another example that no matter how bad things look, if we keep on doing what we're supposed to do, we keep trying, Things change. Things change. Does having to face terrible problems bring out the best in us? Sometimes it does. Sometimes not so good. James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Who you are today is a direct 
outcome, I guess you'd say, of how you handled problems in the past. Is that not true? Last couple of years, we've had a lot of problems. This COVID, it's been awful. And before COVID came here of our congregation, for, you know, for absolutely no reason, we have a couple of strong families because of jobs leave. During this COVID, we've had some people that we've lost because of sickness. You know, they've, they've had problems and we've lost them. We had some people that we lost in the last little bit because of, of spiritual sickness. Then we lost our preacher. All bad things, you know, they are things that discourage us. Things that cause us to, to uh, maybe not feel as good about things. You know, I've known a lot of you all for a long time. And you, like myself, I know for sure, have grown the most during times that you had to face problems or make decisions. During bad times, we have to rely on, on prayer. We have to rely on, on ourselves and what we can do, look for, for the things that we can do. When things are going real smooth, we're complacent. There's not as much that we have to do. We don't feel as if we have to do as much. We're not looking for opportunities. These people that we've all read about here, the, the examples I gave you just in physical life and, and the examples that we've got from, from some of these uh, uh, people that were God's people in the, in the Old Testament, they all had to work to get to where they were going. They had to not be too downcast. They had to turn back to God. They looked for opportunities. And one of the best examples, I think, in the old Bible about looking for opportunities is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is part of that Babylonian captivity. At the time that some were going back to, to uh, re-inhabit Jerusalem and Judea, He's still there in Babylon. At the end of chapter 1 in Nehemiah, verse 11, it says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah was a slave that worked in the king's court. He carried his cup brought him a drink when he wanted it. Nehemiah here is not only when he hears about the, the state of the people that have went back to Judea, he's not only compassionate about it and wishes it to be different. He's looking for something that he can do about it. He's not, and he isn't just looking that, that, you know, I wish somebody would do it. He prays. And what I think is so, so remarkable that he prays for God to help. He doesn't pray to God that, God, may you do something that helps my brethren back in Jerusalem. Do you notice what he prayed about? He prayed that he would have success in going to the king and asking the king to let him go and do it. Because that's what he does in chapter 2. 
He doesn't pray that somebody else does it. He doesn't pray that God does it. He prays that God will give him success in doing what he needs to do to be able to have an influence, to have an opportunity that he can go do it. To me, that's something I think we fail at sometimes. And it's something that has always impressed me about Nehemiah. You know, through COVID and through some people moving off and through some of the things that we've had the last couple of years, our congregation's a little smaller than it was then. But that's an opportunity. You know, we've got six less men that did singing, preaching, praying, preaching sometime that left in the last couple of years for some of those various reasons. And probably what's even worse, their backbone, their wives and their families left too with them. We've been lucky in that same time that we've got several families that's come that take part, that help, and do things. And I'm, I'm thankful for them. We don't ever need to be, uh, we don't ever need to take for granted the people that, that work and strive to, to help us all get to heaven together. But there's cases that sometimes smaller groups are better than big groups. We don't in this area have any of these large churches of Christ that are three or four hundred members. A smaller congregation doesn't have room for passive members. Those big congregations do. Each of us have something that we can do, have something that we can bring, something that we can help each other to, to build each other up, to uh, be able to help all of us to, to get to heaven. This is an opportunity to maybe to do something you haven't had to do before. And I know what you're going to think. Say, well, I'm doing all I can do. And, and maybe you are. You know, that's, that's kind of between you and God. And the next excuse, people say, well, you know, somebody else, they're better at that than I am. Well, I can tell you what, there will always be somebody better than you somewhere. Always. If that's your excuse for not doing more, then you're just going to have to quit everything. Because in your daily life, say somebody can do your job better than you do, so you're going to quit? Somebody can probably take care of your family better than you. You're going to quit? Well, that's not what we need to do. We need to, we need to strive to do the best that we can do to... Uh, Use the things that, that God has given us that's made us stewards over it. Another point is, <laughs> I told a guy this a couple of weeks ago, I said, you, you won't do this any younger. And we won't. You know, just because we haven't done it before, there has to be a first time for everything. You know, Josh was a really good preacher. But I never heard him when he was first starting out. I can tell you this much, when he came here, he'd been preaching for years, part-time, at a lot of different congregations, so he did a lot of practice, and, and he was good. He wasn't as good as after eight years. He was a lot better. You can go back and listen to some of the early lessons, done a good job, but he didn't have the polish he had when he did it later. We can all learn, and we can all grow, and we have to. And just because you're young doesn't mean that you don't have any responsibilities. 
Paul told Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers and as, as but set the believers an example in speech, in conduit, in love, in faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, I know this was written to a preacher, a preacher that had his hands, had had the apostles lay their hands on him. And he had a gift, that gift of prophecy. So does that mean that this doesn't apply to us today? That gift, that knowledge of God, we all have it. In the pew in front of us or on our electronic Bibles, we have that. We have that gift that he had. Now, you may not naturally have the gift of being able to speak, but, you know, to hold a, a, a public forum. But you have things that God has given you. And if you won't do anything or you use the excuse that you can't do anything, you kind of blame God. God has given us all different things that we can do. And it doesn't have to be preaching. It doesn't have to be leading singing, thank goodness. He's given us all things that we... And, and I don't want to say that God hasn't given me enough that I can't do something. Every one of us, man, woman, we can all do something to help, to teach others, to help, to help the congregation to grow. In Matthew 25... Jesus gives the parable of the talents. It's a fairly long reading, and I'm not going to read it because every person in here, I'd say, knows it. So, but, you know, the, you know the story. The master gives one person one talent, gave another servant two talents, he gave one five. And when he came back, he expected them to do something. The one that got five got five more. The one that was given two got two more. The one that got one did nothing with his. And was condemned over it. I asked you a question. You know that story. How happy would the master been if you was the two talent servant and you'd just done one? Would that have been okay? I mean, God's got to judge all of us. But just think about it. Would God have been okay with a person just kind of half trying if he had the ability to get two? What about the five talent guy that just did four? Would he have been happy with him? said, we'll have to let God make those judgments, but I think we need to be careful about how we use what God's given us. I asked you to ask yourself this question. In the past two years, five years, ten years, twenty years, however you want to put it, in your daily lives as an employee, as a worker, as a, a, a husband, a father, have you grown? Are you better now at it than you were when you started? How does that compare with Christian? Have you grown as much as you have in just your personal life and what you can do and the, the strength that you have as a Christian? 
You know, we can be a stronger congregation than we've ever been. But you know what makes a strong congregation? Strong members. The only way that a congregation grows is by its members being more committed, more encouraged, and of a stronger faith. I think that the, the, the apostles, when they started preaching in, in, in Acts, and the Jews and, was, was, and the council was after them, in Acts 5, verse 40, the apostles been brought before the council. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease to teach and preach that Christ is Jesus. Times can be tough. Nobody's going to give us a beating for teaching, at least not here now. But if they did, or if they made fun of us, or it took more of our time than we wanted it to do, we would count ourselves worthy that we were counted, that, that we were counted uh, worthy. Would we, would we think, would we be happy that we were judged as being God's people? That we had said something that was worth the trials? You know, the devil's not going to get mad at you for, doing, for not doing things. I think sometimes we have to, to think, are we, are we worthy of what's been given to us? Times can be tough. Sometimes things happen to us that are, that are, that are not easy. Kent, in his lesson this morning, come through up there in 2 Peter verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 down through 8. I'm going to read those. I'm going to step on Kent's toes a little bit here because he's already went through this in the class. But I want to look at one thing that that's holds true through these verses. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the, conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormented, tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and keep the unrighteous under punishment to the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to rescue you. He's not going to give you something that you can't handle. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's not going to last very long, whatever thing, I mean, COVID's on the downswing now. All the problems we had with trying to, to meet and, and uh, all the different opinions you would have on what we need to do, those can be behind us. All of that stuff is just a light, momentary thing in the big scheme of things. Because we have preparing for us an internal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
Everyone has something they can do. Every one of us. And you know what? We grow from what we do, from the labors that we do. Have you ever taught a class and not learned more than the people you were trying to teach? Every teacher in here that teaches one of the, even the little classes, you learn, you learn just as much as they do or more. Do you ever pray for the opportunity to do more and to help? We probably all fail that. We quite often pray for somebody else to do something or for God to do it for us. But to pray that we have the opportunity to do something, we need to think about those things. And then after we pray for it, we need to work to make it so. You've been patient. You listened to my rattling here for, for a pretty good while. Just think about those things and ask yourself, am I growing? Because we all have to grow to be acceptable to God. If you haven't even started down that road of being one of his children, you don't have any hope. You have to do what he says to be, to be one of his children. I haven't taught on that this morning, but if you know those things and we can do anything for you as we sing the invitation song, please come forth.